Welcome to Let's Talk Cancer. I'm Kerry Adams, the CEO of the Union for International Cancer Control. Attempts to cure cancer have spanned centuries and been influenced by culture, region and religion, from magic spells in ancient Egypt to the use of boar teeth and tinted lead during the Greek era, and treatment by starvation or by cold in 18th century England. Thanks to modern medicine, such as chemotherapy, radiotherapy, surgery, immunotherapy and genomic testing, we are constantly seeing better survival rates, yet cancer remains a leading cause of death worldwide. And those working to understand and treat cancer have faced similar problems throughout history. Resource allocation, disparities in care, religious and cultural barriers, medical skepticism, to name but a few. Looking at the past can provide some valuable lessons and help us perhaps better understand how cancer impacts the world today and what risk it poses for tomorrow. To talk us through the history of cancer, from the earliest known descriptions of cancer in ancient Egypt to the modern era of precision medicine, is Professor Yolanda Arasso from the London Metropolitan University, who works in applied health research and has also studied the history of female cancers with a focus on Latin America. And our second guest is Carsten Timmerman, Professor of History of Science, Technology and Medicine at the University of Manchester. He has a special focus on modern European history and lung cancer. So welcome to you both and thank you very much for joining us for this podcast. Press, can I start with you, Yolanda? So when do you think in the past did we really see the first identification of cancer? What were the, some of the, the original attempts to treat the disease? This is taking a, a very broad brush approach. So the first descriptions um, that we know of are from classical antiquity in the Greco-Roman world. The ancient Greek physician Hippocrates and and his followers as well observe and record the various uh, tumours and growths and describe apparently what is considered to be the first case of breast cancer in history. Um, And he used the term karkinos, which means crab. Uh, in Greek, to describe tumours he observed, likening to a crab that adheres to its um, surroundings with his claws. So from there is the, that, that association with crab and carcinos. But also in the Greco-Roman times, the concept of humours plays a significant role in um, the understanding of cancer. So Hippocrates believed that the body was composed by four fluids or humours, that is blob, phlegm, the yellow bile, and the black bile. Um, when the humans were balanced, the person was considered to be healthy, both mentally and physically. But when there was an imbalance, this caused physical and mental disease. Too much, for example, yellow bile that was thought to be located in the liver will lead to anger, for example, and too much black bile which they believe was from um, the, the gallbladder, could lead to depression. The black bile was thought to be particularly bad and an excess uh, in the body risk causing illnesses and also, in particular, cancer. So just to sum it up, this, the standard idea through antiquity um, and right until the 17th century was that all tumours resulted from inflammatory processes caused by an abnormal flux of 
humors, um, and particularly the black bile. And that would only change right in the 17th century. We have new developments on cancer and surgical practices with um, dissection and alongside autopsy and understanding of blood circulation, for example. There is obviously, we always say, a bit of a caveat, of course, in, in our understanding of what um, earlier periods might have understood about cancer. And, and there's always a risk of performing sort of retrospective um, diagnosis on the writing. So we should avoid that, I think. Just to pick up from Yolanda, I mean, as she said, it's quite difficult to draw a continuous line through the history. We can either do what, I mean, she's talked about, we can take descriptions, old texts, and align them with what we understand to be cancer, but we can't be sure whether it was the same thing. It just sounds plausible. Or we can project backwards and and look at uh, ancient remains and see whether we find signs of of cancer in the bones, for example, which we can do. So there's really, it's very difficult to say anything about the period before, say, 1800, when autopsies became routine part of medical education, kind of hands-on, frequently performed. And only then you also find um, regular descriptions of cancers that are not on the surface. Usually the old descriptions often refer to breast cancer because you could see it was ulcerating. You could see it from the surface. While anything inside the body, the, the, the symptoms are very diffuse and very I'm easy to confuse with something else. So lung cancer, for example, you, you can't really reliably diagnose before you have autopsies. Carlson, centuries and centuries, if not you know, you know, thousands of years of, of cancer being evident. Uh, but what is the story about defining moments of cancer treatment? Uh, the key development are the move to pathological anatomy as a key discipline around 1800, which comes with the systematic quest for lesions. You know, the people look for lesions and that's what an ulcer or what a tumor is. It's, it's a lesion that you can find in the autopsy and that then you can um, associate with certain symptoms. And at the same time, you get descriptions of tissues. So you, you get associations of these weird tissues which may not be the same as normal tissues. And that then, we get to the next key step, the understanding of cancer as something which is characterized by cells dividing out of control. That's basically our understanding. The different understandings don't necessarily lead to different treatments. Very often you keep the same interventions that have been performed before you just reinterpret them. Like surgery, cutting, cutting out the ulcer, don't need cell theory to, for that to make sense. The first modern intervention is the radical mastectomy, which is surgery. So it's an old style intervention, but it's conceptualized in terms of applied cell theory. You don't only cut off the, the tumor, you also follow the the way in which cells travel and in which metastases develop. And then you get radiotherapy as the next intervention. Surgery, of course, we continue to do, but then there's x-rays and radium. 
it comes not only with a, not not only with a new intervention but also with new organizational ideas for radium is expensive x-ray equipment is expensive um, so you get these collaborative networks you get big important cancer centers in paris and stockholm in manchester and then really extensive referral networks and quite elaborate uh, organizations around there it's a step not only in terms of the actual intervention, but also in, in terms of the organizational context. And that kind of leads to the idea that maybe it's good to get organized even beyond national boundaries and organize this internationally. Yolanda, um, obviously you've specialized in women's cancer specifically. Breast cancer is sort of held up as um, one of those cancers where we've made dramatic improvements in survival rates over the last, like, 80 years or so with the ability of radiotherapy, chemotherapy, surgery, et cetera, et cetera. Can you describe what you thought were the, the key moments in that journey to get to a point where, you know, most women in a, a high income country, particularly called early, can actually survive their cancer? One aspect that was crucial in breast cancer and also for cervical cancer as well for, was early detection. I think that in the case of um, breast cancer, and cervical cancer as well, they were both diagnostic tools that were introduced in uh, for early detection that were introduced in South American countries, particularly Argentina and Brazil, Uruguay as well. One was called boscopy for cervical cancer because it became um, the technique of preference for asymptomatic women. It came very early on to Argentina and Brazil. We are talking here 1928, 1930s. And those gynecologists were trained with Hinselman, which is uh, the, the, the person, the, the gynecologist who would develop uh, the colposcope, and started to be standard procedure in gynecological clinics to identify that particular cancer of the cervix. But then it was taken back in Europe and the US after the 1950s. In the case of breast cancer, I think it was very important the contributions of radiologists from Uruguay, Raúl Leborne, who developed the mammography technique a bit as we know it now, today, which consisted of compression of the breast to uh, ensure that the ray, the X-ray were directed to a focal point and not damaging all the healthy tissue. And so by the 1970s, we have screening with mammography as a procedure for early detection of cancer. Which is fantastic. And it saves so many lives, doesn't it? So many lives. I had the great privilege of um, doing a podcast with Mary Gospodarovich, who is a past president of UICC, who's been leading the TNM staging classification for many, many years. And of course, that, that did come from UICC in the 1950s. Um, and and we, we believe it's an important part of the armory of uh, addressing cancer around the world today because it gives a language of communication between oncologists on the type of cancer, the staging, et cetera, et cetera. Carsten, in, in your opinion, how important was that, that, that piece of collective work in terms of helping the community? Absolutely crucial. The standardization of the language by which you communicate results is absolutely crucial. That's, I mean, that's the same for any other condition, but possibly even more so for cancer because you look at a long-term development and it develops over a long period of time. 
And in order to know what others talk about, you need to agree on a fairly simple way of standardize the language. It sounds trivial, but it's not trivial at all. And you couldn't do it without an international organization, which people subscribe to. And I think the, um, the context for this was, was quite crucial that it, I mean, it really took off after the Second World War when people were keen to, um, to talk to each other and to collaborate. And health is a field where you can do that um, even during the Cold War. Even if you disagree about other fundamental things, nobody can disagree that it's a good idea to be able to exchange results on improvements in cancer treatment. And, and the, context, the context of there is very important. I mean, forget there wasn't the podcast model there. There wasn't the, the sharing on social media. Even the academic journals were somewhat limited in terms of sharing. It's amazing that the people came together to address what clearly was a, a major challenge. Um, perhaps we could talk about um, risk factors. I mean, and we still struggle to get um, risk factor information across to people to understand the the issues of you know, smoking and alcohol use and poor diet and physical activity, obesity, et cetera, et cetera. But in your opinion, where, what were the key breakthroughs in terms of understanding risk factors and communicating them? With the pre-modern um, approach to medicine, you'd assume that bad behavior, sinful life, lack of sleep, too much sex, too little sex, could push your constitution in a direction where it would turn into illness. What you get in the 19th century is the attempt to um, identify clear causes for clearly defined conditions. It's very difficult to establish clear causes and they develop over a long period of time, but you can find some associations. And smoking for cancer is, a, is the standard story. The idea of the risk factor emerges again in the 1950s people apply some more sophisticated epidemiological methods, which of course need things like staging and need standardization and need international exchange because you need large numbers, you need to compare. And then you need long-term follow-up. The first risk factor studies were done with people who had developed a form of cancer say they had lung they were lung cancer patients they had a diagnosis of lung cancer and then you would send people into the hospital with a questionnaire and they would ask them about usually their workplace so would they be exposed to suspicious substances at the workplace their residents so are they somewhere where there's roads exhaust fumes were seen as one as one possible candidate or habits like smoking and smoking was suspicious it was it was suspected to cause illness and especially lung cancer from really the early 20th century but the the tools to establish that weren't weren't available and the incidence wasn't really that threatening or wasn't wasn't seen to be that threatening because you know people weren't diagnosed with cancer they were dying from a respiratory illness, but that respiratory illness may have been bronchitis or it may have been tuberculosis. And so cancer wasn't really suspected. And when people were more reliably diagnosed with cancer, you could ask them those questions. 
So the next step is cohort studies, prospective studies. And it, now it gets very expensive and difficult to organize. So now you, what you want is a healthy population. And you want these he this healthy population, you want to ask them in regular intervals, once a year, ideally, how they're doing. Are they still smoking, for example, if we're looking at smoking as a, as a suspicious possible candidate? Have they stopped smoking? Um, what else are they doing? And then you, at some point they die and you get it or they get sick and you get a diagnosis. And then you get, um, if you have a large enough cohort, you can associate those things that you've asked them about every year um, with what their cause of death or their co the cause of their illness. I mean, the point I, that I take from that is the power of research and how important it is for us to do great research on the, the risk factors for cancer and all sorts of things. So Yolanda, can you talk about the research, the world of research and how that has progressed over the last decades and uh, how it's helped particularly women's cancers? There has been a lot of research in female cancers initially because these things have been so exposed, so easy to access them, so difficult to conceal as well. Uh, cervical cancer produced, you know, blood, and that was difficult to to hide, and also some smell as well. When they were obviously, we're talking here when they became ulcerate, and in breast cancer as well because. It was a point in which they can see um, those tumours, as I was describing with this notion of the crab. Um, so that visibility gave them uh, much more research and focus and advance as well, pre-cancer, no? that, that notion of catching the cancer early, at an early stage of development. And for that, these two cancers have been really pioneering, if you like, I mean, in terms of, or after them, they, they started to apply the same notions to cancers in other areas. There is also another area which is related to this, which is the issue of gender and culture and biology and how this interacted at different points in time. We can see this through reproduction, for example, and how it had a greater biological relevance in women than in men, which led to sometimes to gender associations between sexual behavior and cancerous disease and cancer as a female disease. Scientific knowledge in this sense has considered the uterus or, or, or the breast when they degenerated that they did not fulfill the function that is pregnancy or breastfeeding. That I've been working on hormonal treatment for breast cancer. I think it's a good illustration of, of gender and its influence Back in the 1940s and until the 1970s, testosterone therapy was used for the treatment of metastatic breast cancer and did produce quite positive results in women. And they found that it did have an impact in producing um, or shrinking the tumour. Um, it did have an impact, above all, in offering women well-being in terms of avoiding um, some side effects such as uh, nauseas or um, fatigue. However, male doctors in particular cons uh, were concerned about the masculinizing side effects of the drug, which including the growing of hair and the deepening of the voice. And so that was the only side effect that they were considering. And what you see is that 
testosterone obviously stopped being used. However, when tamoxifen, which is the drug that works as an anti-estrogen, when that drug was approved back in 1973, the findings emphasized on the fact that masculinizing effects were not observed. So that was the positive, you know, in comparing the two drugs, the positive uh, of using um, tamoxifen as opposed to testosterone. But on the other hand, we know that currently um, the side effects of tamoxifens and anti-estrogens in general are really a, con a concern in terms of non-adherence to, to these medications. It is estimated that around 50% uh, of women do not adhere at the year five of treatment. And the side effects of these uh, drugs on tamoxifen include hot flashes, fatigue, joint pain, low libido, depression, and so many other factors as well. But these factors were downplayed and disregarded at the time and continue to be uh, problematic today. So in summary, we can say that um, gender notions and biological concepts of female cancer have been historically interacting, but not always this interaction have meant and full progress in clinical practice. Um, understanding the history is very important. UICC is particularly conscious of that in our 90th anniversary. Carsten, what do you think? You know, history important as we continue to fight cancer around the world? Um, I would say what history teaches us in this regard is be realistic about your expectations. The usual pattern in the history of cancer treatment has been um, to apply something which worked for one cancer to all other cancers and then to find it doesn't actually work as well for other cancers. So radiotherapy is good for certain cancers, not that good for others. Chemotherapy or different chemical interventions um, equally, um, they work well for some conditions and not that well for others. For lung cancer, uh, a lot of interventions haven't worked. So while this is a difficult lesson, I think that's, to me, the most valuable lesson from history. I think it's a lesson to what my mum used to say to me, we try, try again. Um, so we, we learn through error as we as we go through. But it's, I think UIC's perspective is we, we, we also feel that a lot of the knowledge we have today is not used well enough around the world. Um, and of course, if we, if we did that, take tobacco control, which you were talking about earlier, if we just applied that, look at the millions of lives we'd save globally. Yolanda, let me pass it to you then, um, history. Um, how important is it in, the, in your world? Knowledge about historical past can also influence the design of current interventions, make them more effective. With that, I'm considering the multi-cancer early detection, um, which is a blood test uh, where DNA is analyzed for the detection of around or up to 50 types of different cancers. And it could be soon uh, available in clinical practice. So this is uh, a lot of uncertainty of what benefits this type of screening may have in the population, what type of harms they might um, cause, the inequalities in health they might lead to. And the history of cancer screening and early diagnosis can provide insight 
uh, into the type of studies and information that will be needed in order to understand and better prepare interventions addressing um, these type of challenges. For example, this issue of inequalities in cancer outcome, it is critical to know that the achievements in cancer control, um, such as screening and new treatments, um, have historically exacerbated disparities based on ethnic or socioeconomic groups and geographic differences as well. So therefore, much work should be done in analysing the feasibility with these multi-cancer centres. Is it possible to reduce these inequalities that we see today? There's also the need to explore the acceptability for certain population groups, that is, the screening behaviour, um, including stigma and fear of cancer, which there's a lot of history as well, um, studies analysing these issues in particular. Um, stigma and fear of cancer affect certain population groups more than others. Um, so all these factors have been explored through the history of, of cancer, and I think um, they are very relevant in terms of lessons, in terms of um, issues that might affect the implementation of a technique that could be very successful, it could be a breakthrough indeed, but there is a lot of social and psychological aspects as well that needs to be uh, looked at or information is needed before uh, implementing this um, into the large population um, as a screening method. Well, that's super. Yolanda, Carsten, thank you very much for your time. It's been uh, very interesting. I've learned a lot. Um, clearly, as a, as a CEO of UACC, I am fully acknowledging the fact that the people before me over the many, many decades that UAC has been together have made great advances in our understanding of cancer and the treatment of cancer. And I'd also like to thank you personally, both of you, for your um, history in being involved in this particular area and the commitment you show to cancer control. So thank you very much and I wish you a good day. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Let's Talk Cancer. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have a moment, please do give us a rating and share the podcast. It really helps us reach a wider audience and inform more people about issues surrounding cancer. For questions and comments, please don't hesitate to contact us at communications at uicc.org. Before you go, I'd like to recommend another podcast, The Voices of the Health Revolution, a podcast produced by the NCD Alliance, which shines a light on the trailblazers leading bold action on non-clinical diseases, including cancer, even when that means taking a stand against the big industries. Find Voices of the Health Revolution at ncdalliance.org.